actually making decisions, what God is going to be doing at that point. And I think just from our experience over the last uh, month, I think it's really timely that Ken is here and sharing with us and leading us into ministry this morning. So I, I'm really glad for you, Ken. And uh, thank you for being willing to be here with us this morning. So I'm going to invite you on. Sanhedrin, a 
a man who's well-schooled in the scriptures, and he's watching at a distance the ministry of Jesus. He came to him by night. He didn't dare come and show his colors openly because, well, within that time, in that location, in that social setting, in his sphere of influence among his people, you didn't really dare come out and declare openly that you were in any way interested in, let alone following, the ministry of this wandering prophet, Jesus, who moved by the Spirit. And so Nicodemus comes and he says, you obviously are from God. You couldn't do what you do but for the fact that God is with you. And Jesus responds to him, truly, truly. Truly, truly is one of those phrasings that, you know, when you read it, when you hear it, what Jesus is really saying is pay close attention. You could miss this. This might go right over your head. So Nicodemus, listen up. Thank you. So he's saying, listen up. Unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. The vineyard was birthed upon a move of the kingdom of God. A man named George Ladd had started to write theology that had essentially been forgotten for hundreds of years, thousands of years in the church, and he brought it back to life, and John Wimber found it, it spoke to him, and he popularized it, and it became the foundation stone of all that the Vineyard Movement is about. And so, Jesus said, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not a place, it's, a, it's an outbreaking of God's power, and it, it's dynamic, it moves around. So where is the kingdom? Well, the kingdom is wherever God is doing whatever God does. But if you're not used to seeing what God does, how would you know what God is doing when he does it? That's really what we want to talk about tonight. So condition one, you must be born again. You must give your life to Christ, is the way we say it today. But it's really more than simply giving your life to Christ. It's a, it's a restart. So Nicodemus is puzzled by this. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered him, truly, truly. Pay attention, Nicodemus. I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, there's been a lot of ink spilled about what Jesus meant by water and the Spirit. We won't solve all that this morning. But one thing is clear. You've got to have the Spirit involved in order to see the kingdom of God move. That much you can take out of this without any dispute. And so that's what Jesus tells Nicodemus, because even though he's a man who's had profound religious training, apparently he's not really born again. He's just following at a distance, and apparently he's not entered into the dimension of the spirit. And then he goes on and he says, flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. The things of the spirit are born of the spirit, and the only way to come into them is through the person of the spirit. And then he says... Don't marvel, don't be surprised that I said you must be born again because the word for wind and the word for spirit are the same in Greek. So I'm going to say spirit, not wind, even though my translation says wind. The spirit blows where he wills and you hear his sound, but you do not know where he comes from or where he goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. So if we are spirit people, if we are born of the spirit, if we are living in a kingdom world, a kingdom reality, if that's, our, if that's really who we are, if that's who we are called to be, then it ought to be that like a leaf bouncing down the street on an autumn day when the wind is up, we are driven along like a leaf. And so our life is like a driven leaf. 
we become people who are responsive to the Spirit, and all we can do is follow where the Spirit leads us or takes us. And with that, we can only do, as Jesus would say two chapters later, what the Father is doing. We have to perceive that. We have to understand it. So it leads to that question, how do we know what the Father is doing? All people have a story. Stories are what bind a people together. They give them an identity. Sometimes those stories are bound up with the history of God himself and his interaction with the people. The, most of the Old Testament is one of those stories. It's a story of God's dealings with the people called the Jews and how they were bound together with him. Sometimes it went better, other times not so well. But... <clears throat> When these stories are bound up with God himself, well then the story becomes his story, and thus we could make a wordplay and say, we are really in history. But not all that passes as history is that kind of history. There is history that stands outside of the involvement of God. It's not that God's not involved in his world, but not all of it is marked in that special way. But the kind of history that I'm talking about, German theologians have a fancy $65, $64 word for it. They call it Heilsgeschichte. And it means literally holy history. When God breaks in and affects the history of a people or of a nation at discrete moments and times, that Heilsgeschichte is not scriptural history, but it does have the fingerprints of God all over it. The vineyard began with such an inbreaking of Heilsgeschichte, of God coming and visiting a people and forming a people who were no people into a people. And with that, there were stories that arose. You may have heard some of them at different times. Probably depends on where you entered the vineyard and what your experience of it has been. But let's just say this. Sometimes the people, even people with history, sometimes they forget their own story. And when they forget their story... Well, they lose their sense of identity. There is no longer a sense of fusion and cohesion. People splinter and they break into factions. So, for example, when we think of the primitive tribes of the earth, Michael's involved in missions movements, the primitive tribes of the earth, many of them, are losing their story of who they are because modernity is encroaching upon them and denying them the reality of the spirit world, denying them their own storyline of where they came from and who they were and how they came to live wherever it was that they lived. I do a lot of ministry in Australia. There's 250 nations in Australia that are aboriginal, each of them with their own language, with their own culture, and those 250 peoples are all losing their history in the face of encroaching modernity, and so it goes. Well, the vineyard's story has at times been under siege, too. The vineyard story begins in the late 1970s, in the, about 40 years ago. And it begins with a man not named John Wimber, but Ken Gullickson. How many people have even heard the name Ken Gullickson? Okay, more than I expected. There was a small church on the west side of Los Angeles, and these were heady days. These were the days of the, of the Jesus People movement. Keith Green was coming to Christ. Bob Dylan was coming to faith. In fact, Bob Dylan came to faith through the ministry of the Vineyard Church in West L.A. that Ken Gullickson pastored. And so it went. Well, it was during these days that a man named John Wimber was also drawn into the orbit of what the Spirit was doing. He was a musician and a composer, and he was a ranger 
uh, lead arranger for a band called the Righteous Brothers. You may have heard of them. Maybe you lost that love and feeling. <laughs> Maybe the name the Righteous Brothers is prophetic of what would become of John. I don't know. You draw your own conclusions. But John had been born in Missouri, and he always retained a certain flavor of the show-me mentality of, the homes, of his home state, even though he really didn't live there very long. His father left the day he was born, took one look at him, and hit the road. And John was not easily impressed. He wanted substance, even in, or maybe we should say especially in, uh, spiritual matters. He was converted through the ministry of a welder named Gunnar Payne, and he developed a passion for evangelism through Gunnar. Some, some years ago when I was in business, I was in transition because of the acquisition, and I got laid off as part of that, and I was looking for a new job, and I was at an outplacement firm, and the outplacement guy looked over my resume, and he goes, Vineyard Ministries, because I worked for John for several years in my 20s, and he looked at his Vineyard Ministries, he says, Johnny Wimber, did you know Johnny Wimber? And I said, well, I don't know anyone who would have dared call him Johnny Wimber. They would have been dead. <laughs> but yeah, I knew John Wimber, I worked for him, he goes, I knew Johnny Wimber back in, back in those early days. He said he led several of my friends to Christ. And as it turned out, and I knew this through other sources, but here was somebody that was a leftover, a holdover, a relic, if you will, um, from those years. And he had, uh, he had known some of the people who had been converted. But John Wimber, long before he was in the ministry, was a prolific evangelist. He had a passion for soul winning that he got from Gunnar Payne, the welder who led him to Christ in a Bible study. He himself personally, one-on-one, -on -one, led over 2,000 people to the Lord without ever being in the ministry. That gives you some flavor for who John Wimber was. But in time, you know, when you're doing that sort of thing, people start to say, hmm, maybe you should be doing more than just being a layman. And so he grew into Christian maturity and ultimately entered the ministry through the Quaker Church. And he became first an assistant pastor in the Quaker Church, and later he became the senior pastor of what he would ultimately grow, or the Lord grew under his leadership, if you prefer, but anyway, what would ultimately become the largest Quaker Church in the United States of America. It's still there today, it's called the Yorba Linda Friends Church. Now, this kind of success doesn't go unnoticed, and so this caught the attention of a professor of church growth at Fuller Theological Seminary up the road in Pasadena, California. That professor's name was C. Peter Wagner. And so he reached out to John, and he recruited him to be the director of the Fuller Evangelistic Association. And for four years, John traveled as a consultant teaching churches how to grow. Now, I've never met anybody who actually hired John until a little while ago, maybe two years ago or so. I was preaching in another country, and a man came up to me and said, I remember John Wimber as a church growth consultant with FEA. He said, I hired him. And I said, really? You're the first person I've ever spoken with that you know, did that. What, tell me what that was like. He goes, well, he had a really interesting philosophy on how we should grow the church. I said, what was that? He said, well, he told us to go down to the bakery and find the, the you know, find the biggest hoagie type roll, you know, that you can, French roll if you prefer, but anyway, you get the idea. The biggest, longest roll that they could make, 
and then get door hangers and put them on all the doors in our neighborhood saying, on such and such a Sunday, the world's biggest hoagie sandwich <laughs> will be made at this church. And so if you come, you can eat part of it. I said, what happened with that? Because this doesn't sound like the John Hoover that I knew. And he said, well, you know, we did exactly what he said. We put out all the door hangers and, you know, we got the roll. We bought the fixings to go in the roll. And he said, hundreds of people came. And I said, and what happened? He said, well, we made it right there in the parking lot. And everybody watched us make the sandwich. And then we cut it into pieces and everybody ate some. And I said, and? He said, and then everybody went home. <laughs> okay. That's not what we're talking about when we talk about being as a driven leaf. Anyway, he said some of those people stuck around for a little while, but eventually they dissipated and it all came to nothing. Well, one night in Detroit, Michigan, John Wimber was in bed and the Holy Spirit woke him up. It was 3 o'clock in the morning. And John was a large man. I think today we would say morbidly obese. Uh, and he was asleep in bed. And this, this may stretch your theology or not. I don't know. Don't know where, you're, where you are on the theological spectrum with this. But anyway, the Holy Spirit shoved him out of bed at 3 o'clock in the morning while he was lying supine. And let's be clear. I don't mean John got out of bed. I mean as he was sleeping, something pushed him. And suddenly, he suspended over air and he hit the floor all 375 pounds of him with a thud, which of course woke him up. And then the Lord spoke to him, Mr. Hoagie Sandwich. And he said to him this, John, I've seen your ministry. And the way John always told the story, there was that sense of, eh, not impressed. I've seen your ministry, John, but now I'm going to show you mine. And so the Spirit further said to him, go home and pastor the church that I've already started. Now John, by some standards, had a unique ability to hear the voice of God. And having worked with him and been around him for many years, I can tell you when John said he'd heard from the Lord, he had heard from the Lord. A lot of people say God told me this, God spoke that, and it's nonsense. But when John said it, it was right. And he didn't use those words lightly. He didn't take the name of the Lord in vain. So the Spirit told him, go home and pastor the church I've already started. It was 1977, 40 years ago. And that church was Calvary Chapel of Yorba Linda. Now that church had started with only seven people, one of whom was John's wife, Carol. Another of whom was Carl Tuttle's sister, Candy Wickwire. If the name Carl Tuttle rings a bell for you, it doesn't pass on it. But anyway, the church was meeting in Candy Wickwire's living room, and John had been there. He visited it on one of his trips home, and he didn't think very much of this church. After all, it's only seven people. It's kind of lame. He'd been the pastor of the largest Quaker church in the, in the country. And by his own testimony, they sang too long and they cried a lot. <laughs> and as Carol Wimmer would later say, they were tired of being Pharisees. They were tired of being hard and bitter. They were tired of living by all these rules. They were tired of living like Nicodemus, maybe. But over time, the church began to grow and moved to a series of temporary schools and halls and whatnot. And eventually it moved into Canyon High School, which is still there on the west side of the 91 freeway at Imperial Highway. It's literally across the freeway 
from the current Anaheim Vineyard facility, but um, I would say that the spiritual climate in those two buildings was quite different then and today. In early 1979, two years after God had called John to go home, the Jesus People movement was waning. It had hit its apogee and was in decline. It was centered at a, a church called Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, which is about 20 miles away down the road from this Canyon High School facility. But thousands had been converted into Jesus People movement, most of them druggies and hippies and kind of down and outers. And this wasn't a white collar movement. And the leaders of the Calvary Chapel movement were a man named Chuck Smith, who was a Foursquare pastor with a strong teaching gift, and Lonnie Frisbee, who was a prophet. And early in his days, Paul Kane was involved as well, if you remember that name from the prophetic years of the Vineyard's journey. Again, if you don't, don't worry about it. But anyway, Calvary Chapel of Yorba Linda, the church that John was now pastoring, there had always been something different about it. It didn't quite look and feel exactly like a Calvary Chapel, but in those days, it flew under the banner of Calvary Chapel. And so eventually those differences became great enough that Chuck Smith, shall we say, invited this church to leave Calvary Chapel. But in the intervening time, John Wimber and Ken Gullickson, the founder of the Vineyard, they had become pretty good friends, and the Vineyard was a fledgling movement with about six churches in it, and Ken recognized the grace that was on John's life, and he willingly handed over the leadership of the movement to John Wimber. And it was during this time that Lonnie Frisbee began visiting what was now called the Vineyard of Yorba Linda. Well, one day he was there, and the Holy Spirit spoke to John, and he said, John, invite that young man to speak. John didn't even know who he was. He just, you. So he walked over to him and asked him to talk. And so on Mother's Day, 1980, Lonnie preached to the church. And no one's ever called it this that I'm aware of. There have been some books written about it. Um, but you might have called it the Mother's Day Massacre. And the reason you might have called it that was because the Holy Spirit began to move following Lonnie's famous line in his high, unmistakable little voice. Now the church has quenched the Holy Spirit. But he's getting over it. <laughs> And then he invited everybody under the age of 25 years old to come forward. And the Holy Spirit fell like a bomb, sweeping most of those young people to the floor. One of them was my friend Tim Pfeiffer, who as he fell to the floor, his arm kind of hooked the microphone. And it came down like this as he fell to the ground. And the microphone was right there in front of his face. And... Tim Pfeiffer, who is today the general counsel of the largest corporation in Colorado, um, in those days he was just a you know scrawny young man. Uh, he was not speaking, but he was screaming in tongues as it's going over the microphone and over the house system in a church that didn't believe in speaking in tongues. <laughs> People slammed their Bibles and they stormed out of the church in anger. John ran to the back trying to, you know, do damage control. And uh, he stayed up all that night searching the Bible, searching the scriptures for, where does it say, come Holy Spirit, whammo? 
You couldn't figure it out. And at 5 a.m. the next morning, on Monday morning at 5 a.m., Tom Stipe, who was a pastor in Denver, Colorado, um, he called John on the phone. You know, phone, ancient technology. He called John on the phone. And he said, John, I have a word for you from God. And John said, what is it? And Tommy said to him, this is the word the Lord gave me, John. And this is in quotes, John, it's me. Well, John would later say that people would come to him in the aftermath of this event and say, just how far is this going to go? And John would famously pick up the Bible and hold it up to him and he'd say, no further than this book. Mm. People would be comforted by that. And John used to say, have you read this book? <laughs> well, this was the beginning of a new approach to church life. It was not business as usual. It was not white bread evangelicalism. Um, it had some distinctive hallmarks to it. Number one was let the Holy Spirit run the church. Let's all become as driven leaves. And let the Spirit carry us along as we hear His voice and respond to His promptings. With it came the emphasis on power evangelism, anchored in the theological underpinning of the kingdom of God, of which I've already made reference and which we saw here in John chapter 3. Evangelism was not just about preaching the word, although that's the way most people still understood it. It was to be about both proclamation and demonstration. Yeah. And with this, there was an understanding that God was coming to the rescue of his people, that all of these supernatural and miraculous things were to free people from bondage, to heal them of their sickness, to you know, deal with their distraught minds and their tortured lives and their broken existence because God was coming to break in and to change the order of people's existence. And in that summer, following that Mother's Day massacre, the church grew by over 1,000 people. Now, when I say grew by more than 1,000 people, I don't just mean more bodies in the seats. I mean that's the number were baptized. There were many, many more that hadn't been baptized, and now this gymnasium at Canyon High School was overflowing, and during my time working with John, people began visiting in droves from around the world. If you think of the great revivals that have happened over the last 40 years, <clears throat> Toronto, Brownsville, some of the other ones, where people get on planes and they go see what's God up to, that was us. And in fact, most of the great moves of God that have happened in the last 40 years, if you listen to their leaders, you listen to their speakers, they will tell you in one way or another, they all look upstream like tributaries of a great river to the headwaters of what God did at the vineyard in Canyon High in 1980. That's what they all look to. We, at one time, were the headwaters of the greatest move of God in the latter 20th century. That's the vineyard's roots. This is the birthright of the vineyard movement. And so during that time, I was traveling with John and some of the other guys that were some of his associates. <clears throat> And the movement grew beyond 200 congregations. And this wasn't church planning because someone looked at the map and said, we need one there. It was because as we traveled, well, I mentioned Bob Dylan, who, as we traveled, it was the Rolling Thunder Review. 
We'd roll into towns with names like Marion, Illinois, Champaign, Illinois, Evanston, Fort Wayne, Indianapolis, Cincinnati, even Houston. And the Spirit of God would fall like a bomb. And people would be forged into a people. They would be called together. They would have suddenly have a history that they had not had. A people who were not a people became a people because they had a common experience and a common story of this is what we've encountered. We have all received from him grace upon grace. And what we have seen, what we have heard, what we have looked upon, what our hands have touched, this is what we declare to you concerning the word of life. And the life was made manifest. That's what happened. And so congregations were summoned into existence. People were formed and drawn together. Baton Rouge, New Orleans, Dallas, Baltimore, New York City. God was changing the face of the church. And the vineyard was riding the crest of the wave, if you want to say it that way. Or the vineyard was the leaf that was bouncing along under the auspices of the Holy Spirit. It was an amazing time. I was there. I was part of it. Now, how did we know that God was really moving? You know, I can remember when I was a young man, when I was in seminary as well, um, people would talk about the Holy Spirit, but, you know, what was the Holy Spirit? Sometimes people called him an it, because they didn't know that he had personality. They didn't know that he had power. They didn't know that he had intentionality and will. <coughs> Oh, yeah, they have the theology. He's the third person of the Trinity, but, you know, nobody really knew. You could sit in a building and people say, the Spirit is here, and it's like, well, all that feels like is the air conditioning. And so there was, a, there was a very low state of expectation. Yeah. Yes. And one of the things I've learned over many years of doing this with John, since John's passing, is one of the things that really catalyzes and triggers moves of God is this expectation. Because expectation is combustible. I like to say it this way. Expectation is the combustible fuel of faith. And when expectation is in a room, it's like walking into a room filled with natural gas. Just take a match. The whole room goes off. And that's what we, that's what we were. That's who we were. And you're, this was our history. This was not church as same old, same old. We were summoned as a people that God put his hand upon, that we would declare his excellencies and show his power to the world that the kingdom of God was breaking in. Amen. But you know, when a people loses its story, that people begins to die. And so we have to recover the story. What did it look like when the spirit of God began to move? Well, the first distinctive sign of the Spirit's coming was trembling and shaking. Sometimes people don't like that very much. It's kind of messy, sort of off the grid. This doesn't look like what they're doing at Joel Osteen's church this morning. And with it comes the question, where's that in Scripture? 1 Samuel 10.10. 10. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met Saul, and the Spirit of God came upon him in power. Again, 1 Samuel 16, 13, then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power from that day forward. 
Isaiah 66, 2, but to this one I will look, to one who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Now, we often want to dumb that down and make it into, you know, you have reverence for God's word. No, it says tremble at God's word. There's something about it that strikes a chord within you. You resonate to it and suddenly the power of the Lord is upon you. Daniel 10.10, 10, then, then behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling, trembling on my hands and knees. Now, I know I'm in the pulpit and I know it's Sunday morning, but forgive me, but this is what that means. That's what that means. That might not be respectable. But one of the last words Paul Cain gave to the Vineyard Movement before he was moved out was a word called respectability versus the anointing. And I would submit to you that we would rather have the anointing. That we would rather be driven along like a leaf before the wind of God than that we be respectable. Because Nicodemus was a respectable man. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. He knew his society. He was connected. He had a perfect life. But he needed more and he wanted more. And he came to Jesus saying, what is this all about? And Jesus said, Nick, you need to get born again and you need the Spirit. That's what he said. Second distinctive sign that we saw in, these, in those years of the Spirit's coming is nowadays people call it slain in the Spirit. You might call it falling out in the Spirit. John 18, verses 4 to 6. Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward, this is to the soldiers who had come to arrest him, and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, We seek Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with the soldiers, and when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. I don't have a catcher, so I won't fall back. <laughs> Commentators have written about this passage for centuries, and I've read pretty much every commentary that's worth reading on that exact passage I just read, and almost to a man, you know what they say? And it's mostly men that have written them. There have been a few women, but they're just mimicking the men anyway. What? Uh, pretty much they all say this doesn't really mean what it says. They didn't really draw back and fall to the ground. Well, yeah, they actually did. And then some say, well, you know, they were shocked because he said, I am. And in Greek, that would mean that he's making this declaration of his godhood. I assure you, the soldiers were not impressed that he was saying, I am. What was happening was there was a power that was coming. There was a, there was a witness. There was a, there was a spirit-empowered clash of kingdoms. The kingdom of Caesar against the kingdom of God. This is not unlike what happened in 1 Samuel when Saul the king on three separate occasions sent detachments of soldiers to arrest David at Naoth in Ramah while he was with Samuel. And each time the Spirit of God came and struck those men to the ground and they lay on the ground shaking and trembling under the power of God. And finally Saul himself went. And then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Saul so that he stripped off his clothes and prophesied. Don't try that in church. <laughs> and people said, is Saul numbered among the prophets? That's what was going on. And how about this one, Revelation 1.17, when I saw Jesus, 
I fell at his feet like a dead man. Yeah. Have you ever seen a dead man drop? Maybe someone has a heart attack in mid-stride. I remember during the first Iraq war, I was watching uh, CNN, and one of the news reporters, you know, they were on, and you could see stuff going on in the background, and while this reporter was on air, you heard this loud, and it was a gunshot, because it was a war, and there was a soldier or somebody, I can't even remember now who it was, but someone directly behind the reporter, and now you see him, and now you don't, because they've been shot, and they dropped like a rock. So that's kind of what it looks like when the Spirit comes like that. Now again, that's messy church. That's not church that's predictable. Here was another sign that we saw, falling face down. It's one thing to fall backward, to rest in the Spirit or be slain in the Spirit. But how about this, Genesis 17, 3. Abraham fell on his face while God talked with him about the covenant that he was making with him. You know, we, we take that language and we think it means, well, you know, he sort of knelt down. No, fall on your face means like, we did a conference this weekend over at Church of the Apostles. And uh, we had several people that the Holy Spirit hit them that way. And bam, they went down face first, face plant, if you want to say it that way. Planky. <laughs> How about this one, Ezekiel 3.23, so I got up and went out on the plain, and behold, the glory of the Lord was standing there on the plain, like the glory which I saw by the river Kibar, and I fell on my face. There it is again. How about this one, Daniel 8.17, Daniel seemed to have walking problems. One time he's trembling on his hands and knees, but this one, Daniel 8.17, so he came near to where I was standing. This is the angel of the Lord. And when he came, I was frightened and I fell on my face. Now this, again, does not mean I sort of gingerly got down. It means like, <laughs> because there's some kind of encounter with true manifest power that is born of the Holy Spirit. Here's another one that we saw. Stupor, or if you like, trances, which is the word that we see in Scripture. What is a trance? Well, it's kind of that boundary condition between awake and asleep where you're, you're fixated a bit and you can't quite shake out of it. Genesis 15, 12, and when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abraham. He laid out a sacrifice before the Lord and there had been mysteriously a smoking torch or a burning torch and a smoking fire pot and they passed between the pieces of the animal that he laid out as an offering this is a little weird. This is a little freaky. This is kind of supernatural prophetic stuff. But God ratified the covenant in that moment, and Abraham fell into a trance while that was going on. Here's Daniel again. He's having more problems. But I heard the sound of the angel's words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. Daniel 10, 9. Then how about this, Acts 10.10, 10, Peter became hungry and he wanted something to eat, but while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and he saw the heavens opened. Or Paul the Apostle, Acts 22.17, when I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I, Paul, fell into a trance and saw Jesus say to me, make haste to get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. I don't know the last time you saw someone fall into a trance, but it's kind of different when that's going on. I remember being in Western Australia a couple of years ago, 
and I went into this little community hall. We had a pretty good crowd, but anyway, we're in this hall, and all these people are there, and they put out a carpet in the middle of the room, and I just had a sense that there was, some, there was like a zone of power, a zone of glory, if you will, resting right over that carpet. And I said, um, you know, anybody who wants to receive the Holy Spirit tonight, come stand on the carpet. And his people would literally just cross over that threshold like this. <clears throat> they would just fall into trances. Some of them were open-eyed, some of them were not, but they were like gone. And as some of them came to afterward, they said, whether I was in the body or out of the body, nobody knows. Mm. To quote the Apostle Paul. Now, we could see their bodies. The bodies didn't disappear. But something happened to those people. And, you know, some of them were transfixed with their eyes open while they were in that state. Now, some of you are uncomfortable with what I'm describing. The very reason I'm giving you all these scriptures is to show you that this is not out of the realm of biblical experience. It just may be out of the realm of your experience. Yeah. Now, what I'm trying to do here is to recover some history. I'm trying to recover who are we, Vineyard? Because the one thing that we knew about the vineyard, and Jack Hayford came and gave us a prophetic word in 1995. Jack Hayford, the head of the International Church of the Foursquare Gospel at that time, and the founder of Church on the Way, he came and he spoke to the vineyard movement at its national convention in 1995. And he said, you know, vineyard, don't ever lose your emphasis on the Holy Spirit and on signs and wonders because there are many people who can preach. There are many people who can do theology. And to be honest, you're not that good. Not of that stuff. That's what he said. You can look, you can watch it on YouTube. But he did say this. He said, but the one thing you have that no one else has is this thing called the Holy Spirit's ministry. There's nobody else in the world who's doing this the way you do it. Fifth distinct sign of the Spirit's coming. Bodily manifestations. Now this could be many things. Tingling. Numbness, dizziness, altered respiration. There's a lot of things. Jeremiah said it this way. Jeremiah 20, verse 9. Then in my heart, it is, as it were, a burning fire in my bones. So Jeremiah had a sensation of God's power upon him, his spirit upon him, and he felt like he was burning up inside. Sizzling hot, if you will. Sixth distinctive sign that we saw, seeing in the spirit. Many times people would, well, they would see a lot of things. They would see everything from angels to the spirit resting on specific individuals, seeing in the spirit in visions, maybe dreams if they were asleep. But seeing in the spirit is one of those things that goes on in this kind of a moving of God. John 1.47, we have the story of Philip. And so it says this, starting in verse 43, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, namely Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, we'll come and see. And so Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, and he said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit, or in whom there is no guile. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered, 
Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, again, pay attention, you could miss this. Nathaniel, you will see heaven opened and the angel of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So Jesus had a vision of Nathaniel, but when he had physical eyes laid on him, he could see by discerning the spirits, he could call out and say, this man has a pure heart, this man has a pure spirit. Nathaniel's kind of taken aback at that, and Jesus says, you're going to see more than that. The fact that I told you I saw you under the fig tree is, well, it's penny ante, it's in the table stakes. And Nathaniel, your eyes will be open, you'll see angels rising and falling, ascending and descending on me. So all of these are dimensions of seeing in the Spirit. How about this one? Acts 2.3, we love to talk about Pentecost. They saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. In my Facebook group, God is not a theory. Don't search it. You can't find it. It's deliberately hidden. If you want to get in, friend me, chem.fish.184. Use Facebook to do it. Don't use Google. In my Facebook group, God is not a theory. We have some pictures of meetings where the Spirit is on people and you can see flames over their head. Now, we always think like a little candle flame. These flames are at least as tall as the people who are under the anointing, getting filled with the Holy Spirit. Unretouched photographs. Yes, they're real. And then there was this visit during the Rolling Thunder Review in 1984, 33 years ago. In the spring of the year, uh, Blaine Cook led a team to a church called the Spillertown Baptist Church. I was traveling with Blaine in those days, and we went to this church in Spillertown because John Wimber had been invited there and wouldn't go. You say, where is Spillertown? That's exactly my point. <laughs> it's in southern Illinois, and a man named Randy Clark was pastoring that church. And he was hungry for God, and he wanted the Holy Spirit like anything. He didn't know very much. He knew a lot of Bible, he was kind of like Nicodemus, but he wanted more. And he'd ask John to come, and John said, Randy, I'm not going to go to Spillertown, Illinois. And it took us about five hours from O'Hare to get there. And then we flew out of St. Louis, and it was about the same distance there. It's downstate Illinois, it's cold country, there's not much to it. The Spillertown Baptist Church sits there today on the Spillertown Road in Spillertown. And when you've got a church named after the town on the street that is the main drag of the town, you know you're in small-town America. And in those days, people didn't have cell phones and the Internet and whatnot. It's hard to believe that there was ever such a time, but this was the way it was. And so we held meetings there for five nights, and the Holy Spirit fell like a bomb in those meetings. And one night, the fire brigade showed up outside. I shouldn't say fire brigade. That's Australian. The fire department showed up. The, uh, they showed up outside the, the door in their truck, and it was an all-volunteer fire department in Spillertown, Illinois. But anyway, they came in in their turnouts with axes and hoses, and they came through the back doors, and they said, we're here to, to put out the fire. Someone was driving down the Spillertown Road and saw flames leaping out of the belfry of the church. Can we go check this out. And we're like, well, we're just holding church. There's no fire here, but we need to check it out. Okay, so clomp, 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 clomp. Up they go. You can hear them overhead. After a bit, they came down. They said, you're right, there's no fire, but we ourselves saw the flames when we pulled up in front of the church. <laughs> yeah. So physical manifestations do occur. Do they occur all the time? No, but they occur a lot more often than maybe you might suppose. 
Seventh distinctive sign of the Spirit's coming. How about speaking in other languages? We often call them tongues, but tongues in that sense is just an old-fashioned word for languages. It's King James English. But Isaiah 28.11, which is cited by Paul in his discourse on tongues in 1 Corinthians 14.21, Isaiah 28.11 says this, For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue or a foreign language, the Lord will speak to his people. So Isaiah prophesied that there would be other languages that would be given as a sign of the Spirit's coming. Of course, the day of Pentecost, Acts 2-4, they were all filled with the Spirit and they spoke in other languages or tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. But how about this one, Acts 10, 45-46, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues, speaking in other languages, and extolling God. Acts 19.6, and when Paul had laid his hands on the Ephesians, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. So this business of tongues, some people want to make it optional. Well, I guess you could make it optional, but that's like having an eight-cylinder car with only seven cylinders working. Because it was all through the New Testament. And it was totally unacceptable in the Calvary Chapel of Yorba Linda that became the vineyard of Yorba Linda until the Holy Spirit fell like a bomb on Mother's Day and suddenly all these people, including my friend Tim Pfeiffer, were screaming in tongues because there was so much power moving through them and they were being filled with the Spirit. They didn't know what to do. They were beside themselves. Eighth distinctive sign of the Spirit's coming, a changed countenance. Sometimes when the Spirit of God is on people, different people use different language. The one that you'll hear commonly these days is the glory of God was on them. Or the fire of God was on them. Well, I tend to reserve those terms for other uses, but okay, if people want to use that language, we can go with it. But Exodus 34, 29, and again at Exodus 34, uh, 35, so two verses in Exodus 34, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been speaking with him. And when the Spirit of God is on people, their face may flush, it may turn kind of a rosy pink red, it may turn white. And the sons of Israel would see the face of Moses, the skin of Moses' face shone. It was so bright that he had to put a veil over his face because of the reflected glory coming off of him. How about this one? Matthew 17, 2. Jesus was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. We've seen moments like this in meetings in different places, different parts of the world. Again, I don't want to mislead you and say it's every time, because it's not every time, but it's not zero either. And what are you going to do if your theology puts God in such a box and such things are meant to be, well, you know, if they ever happened at all, they happened way back then somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Acts 6.15, you say, well, you know, that's Jesus after all, and Moses the lawgiver. Acts 6.15 they saw Stephen's face as the stones were falling upon him to kill him. And it says his face was like the face of an angel. Yes. What does the scripture tell us about the face of angels? Every single one shines like the sun. Oh. Ninth 
distinctive sign of the Spirit's coming, seeing faith on people. Paul looking intently at the man and seeing that he had faith to be made well. Now, the translation I'm reading says looked intently at, but I actually really like the King James here. It says he fixed his gaze on him. He locked eyes. Target acquisition. And when that happened, he saw that that man had faith to be made well. And in these kinds of settings, oftentimes you can look out, maybe on a crowd or just across the room at somebody, and you say, oh, God's sending me over there to give that person a word, to pray for them, or call down the Spirit on them, or pronounce them healed across the room. It kind of depends on the sphere in which you're operating. But all of these things are, again, they're in the realm of messy church, but this is who we were. This, is, this was vineyard back then. I remember being in a village in Indonesia on an island way removed from any of the places that you've ever heard of. I'd never heard of where we were. I, I knew we were at the ends of the earth. And we were holding meetings there, and the Lord was moving with great power. We were seeing many, many people healed of anything you can imagine. It was all on offer. And by the way, don't be offended, but 100% of the people were getting 100% healed. Yeah. There was that degree of release of the, of the power of God. This story is not from then. This story is from now. This is only a couple of years ago. And in the middle of the meetings, it walks a group of people, about 350 of them. They've been living in tree houses in a swamp. And they heard that people could be healed at these meetings, and they'd walk for three days down jungle trails, because they didn't own cars. This was almost a Stone Age tribe. The men, they were wearing gourds. I'll let you figure out where they have them. <laughs> and the women, they were wearing a large leaf, only over the front, thank you very much. Nothing else. And they walked in and they said, we've heard we, that you can be healed. We've come to be healed. We've walked three days in order to find this. And the Spirit of God mowed them down. And they fell in piles in the room, speaking in tongues, healed and born again. The entire tribe was converted in one shot. You want to talk about people movements? You want to talk about Christian Kaiser's book, A People Reborn? It was that. I could go on and on. I could talk about many different stories that I've seen. Tales from the road, the works of God, the work of the Holy Spirit. But these are the things that we look for. These are the things we lean into. These are the things we do when we are people who are people of the Spirit who are driven along like a leaf before the wind. The wind blows where it wills, and so it is of everyone who is born of the Spirit. This is meant to be the birthright of a Christian, and even more particularly, it is meant to be the birthright of the vineyard movement. So the Holy Spirit provokes and empowers moves of God. I made a comment earlier about dots on a map and how we need a church here or here. Well, when these moves of God happen, a people is born. People are forged together by fire, the fire of the Spirit, and those who have been disparate are drawn together. They have a shared experience of God. Church planning of that type, which was what the vineyard did in its earliest days, it arises from those moves of God as the people who have those shared experiences of God decide to form a community under the rulership of God. And as John Member would have said, let the Holy Spirit run the church. 
People who are born again in wounds of God, of the type I've described, seldom question the reality of their faith afterward. Sometimes they'll get led away into sin and they'll, they'll forsake what they know to be right. That's different from that ambiguous angst that seems to plague our modern world where people, say, well, they say they're a Christian, but you know, deep down there's, a, there's this sort of unsettledness about, well, I, I don't actually know if I really believe all that stuff. But when people have been encountered by the Spirit in the way that I'm describing, that question is settled forever. Paul said it this way to the Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4-5, he said, We know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you. A generation or two ago, or a couple of centuries ago, during the time of the Puritans, many people spent considerable portions of their lives wringing their hands and wondering, Am I really among the elect? Am I truly saved? Who can know? And the finest theological minds of the day said you can't know. But Paul said you could. We know, brothers loved by God and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you. We know it. And here's how we know it. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. Well, this is the vineyard as it was. This is the vineyard, I think, as God still envisions it. Our past is our future, because this is our story. There's no other movement on earth that can make these kinds of claims in this way, but we can, because God brought this to us, and I'm a living witness here to tell you our story of what we saw, of what we heard, and of what he did. If you're sitting in this church this morning and you consider yourself a vineyardite, then this should be your story. Amen. And if it isn't, God wants to invite you into his story because the river is still running. Because the wind is still blowing. And you are meant to be a driven leaf before the wind. Mm. Let it be so. Now, I know somebody's got to go get kids or whatever, so if you have to do that, feel free. You can bring them in here if you want. That's fine. It's going to be what it's going to be. Um, but having said all of those things, if there are people here who, in hearing our story, that you say, I want that. I had it and I lost it, or I never had it and I want it now, or whatever state you're in. There's something about this that has stirred you, that's provoked you. Amen. Come on down to the front. I believe the Holy Spirit would be happy to let the river yes. continue to flow. Yes, Lord, yes. As we close the service. Yes, yes, Lord, yes. I don't even know if I went over time. How long did I talk? I went over time. <laughs> yeah, I knew this lady was going to come up because I could see the Spirit of God falling on her. She go. can't even stop the tears from coming out of her eyes. I would go, but I can't. Come, Holy Spirit. More of you, Lord. Vineyard, this is your birthright. There's nothing unscriptural about what I've talked about. That's why I took pains to show you the scripture. This is what we were born into. This is what God always intended for this movement. And the promises for the young and the old, for our children, as many as the Lord our God shall call. Okay.
Hold out your hands. Humberto, you want to come up and help me? Father, we thank you yes, for this amazing gift of the Holy Spirit who was poured out at Pentecost, but we thank you as well that there was a visitation of the Holy Spirit that came over the vineyard movement all these years ago. That you called the people who were no people to be a